mentioned uh, this past week was at General Assembly and as an intern, it's not typical that interns would go. I saw on Facebook that uh, for the PCA today is National Intern Preaching Day <laughs> because so many people are at General Assembly and they're wore out. But I think I'm probably one of the few interns that actually went. And if any of you all watch General Assembly, one of the things I learned about General Assembly is that we vote to vote a lot. We don't just vote, we vote to vote. So it was quite complicated, and if you can wrap your head around it, I commend you <laughs> for that. Um, as Brad said, I'm a pastoral intern under the care of the Presbytery, serving with Dan Anderson in Little Rock. Um, he mentioned downtown. We've jumped around so many times as a church plant over this past year. It's been a, a real exciting uh, time. Now, something I failed to do on account of General Assembly and account of my own failing to keep track of things was I was supposed to send Heath some questions to put into the bulletin so y'all could review them. I sent them to him. He didn't get them. But I'm going to read the questions I did. See. Oh, they're on there? Man, Heath's the man. Yeah. <laughs> Look, never mind. You don't read. Never mind. I was going to read them out to you. I wanted y'all to have them because I was like, these are good. Um, but Heath's the man because I'm not the man. So, um, again, uh, thankful to be here. Um, let's turn our, our attention to the word of the Lord and uh, originally, when I had worked on this, I wanted to read all 44 verses in John 11. We're not going to do that. I'm going to summarize some of them as we work through the sermon, but we're going to hone in on the part that uh, is the most important part of this passage. And so, starting in verse 17 of John chapter 11, uh, hear the word of the Lord. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. The word of the Lord. This is a lengthy story, but I think it uh, encapsulates one of the deepest things about the Christian faith, that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. And when John wrote this gospel, he was writing both to believers and unbelievers. But for those of us who did believe, he was writing so that our faith would increase. Not that we would necessarily find new faith. We already had faith. But think of faith as like a dimmer switch on a light, not an on-off thing, but that it would increase, that the light would get brighter. And so John was writing to us that we may believe more deeply in Jesus Christ. And this is one of Jesus' seven, seven or eight I am statements and one of the signs that corresponds to one of his statements here. And so we honed, I wanted to hone in on that specific section of this passage because that's where that I am statement rises. And so ultimately what we should gain from this passage is that because of Christ, we should live. We should not go out into the world as people who are dead, people who are alive 
And as we work our way through this story, we'll have three little signposts to hang our hats on to place more trust in Christ. And we should live because Jesus is control of life and death. We should live because Jesus himself is the source of life. And we should live because Jesus has made us alive. Now, I mentioned we should hang our hat on these three sections here. And one of the stories that I like to hang my hat on is Lord of the Rings. If you're a nerd like me, you will love that. If you're like not nerdy at all, you're going to be like, I don't even know what you're talking about. As a kid, you know, being Lord of the Rings came out in like, what, 2003, 2002, I think. I was really young at that time. And I loved those movies because it was good guys and bad guys. It was dragons and people who fought with swords and shot bows. And I thought that was so cool. They're out there fighting evil, and it's awesome. I had no conceptions of the greater meanings of the story at the time. But as I've grown older, I've come to enjoy those stories because I see life in them, real life. And one of my favorite movies is the second one called The Two Towers, and there's a huge war that takes place in that one. Lots of battle, so naturally younger Blake thought this is the coolest thing ever. But as I've grown up, and I re- recently rewatched the extended editions of those, I had a lot of time on my hands one day. But there was one particular scene in the second movie when a king who's recognized that his country is to be destroyed by an evil, evil wizard, that he rallies his people and takes them to a fortress built into the side of a mountain. Thinking that we can stay safe here with our small numbers, we can protect everyone. But little do they, knew, little do they know that a force of 10,000 called orcs, if you don't know what they're all, just, just bad guys, just keep that... 10,000 bad guys are coming for them. And as the battle goes on, you know, they've got people like kids in small helmets throwing rocks off the side of the wall trying to keep the evil at bay. And it ain't happening. It ain't working. So they rally back to the last bastion of hope that they have, the final keep. They're throwing tables and benches and such at the door to try to keep them out. They've got a massive battering ram that they're just ramming against the door. All hope is lost. The king, whose name is Theoden, the color is dropped from his face. He's as pale as a ghost. Staring up into the sky, he says, so much death. What is man to do against such reckless hate? I think this past year has taught us, if anything, that we are mortal, that we are fragile. And in some sense, depending on what your life situation looked like, You might have been in your last bastion of hope, thinking, so much death, what am I to do? And I think we all found ourselves fairly helpless. Thousands and thousands of people have died. We all know someone who's been sick. We very well may know someone who has lost someone. Or you may have lost someone yourself. But as I said, we are not without hope, and I think these statements of so much death What am I to do? Are the exact statements that Martha and Mary were probably saying here in John chapter 11. But again, we are not without hope. We do not have to fear death. We may live because of who Jesus is and who he says he is. So this story begins, obviously, in verse 1. And so I will summarize briefly for us what that passage looks like, or what this section looks like. And essentially, Jesus gains word that someone whom he loves, Lazarus, is fallen ill. 
In verse 5 and 6, it says that Jesus loves Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And Jesus does the weirdest thing kind of ever, I think. It's so strange. He does nothing. He, go, he essentially goes, okay. I'm a little taken back by that. Like, Jesus, what the heck? You're supposed to go and save your people, and you're doing nothing? As we learn later, he's, it's all, Bethany's only two miles away from where Jesus is. Most of us can walk two miles in about 30 minutes. What on earth? But the post that we can hang our hat on is that Jesus is in control of life and death. Therefore, we may go on living. You see, Jesus doesn't just do nothing. He also states that this sickness shall not end in death, but shall be for the glory of the Son of God. And then he later tells his disciples that it is better that I was not there, for it will be for the glory of God and for your faith. Again, I'm paraphrasing. And so he then turns to the disciples after they've expressed such great fear regarding the Pharisees, and he's like, I'm here. Calm down. I'm in control of this situation. Do not fear. He says, I am the light, and we will walk in the light. Jesus is in control of life and of death. And he tells his disciples, do not fear death, but live in a roundabout way. I think most of us can relate to this very simple thing, especially if you're a parent. I, not being one, uh, can't really relate to this, but I've experienced it having been a child. I wanted some, you know, you want this toy, you want to go do this thing so bad, and you're told no, not right now. No, because what we don't know as the child in the situation is that your parent has something better planned for you, some better gift to give to you. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's telling them, no, I'm not going to come now. I'm not going to do this now because I have something better planned for you. Something that will ultimately be for your increase of faith and my glory. That we will literally take our trust and say, Jesus, here it is. You've got it. I've trusted in you to handle this. Because especially back in those days when medicine wasn't was a thing, but not quite as advanced as it is today. What, what were they to do other than to trust God? And so if we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, do we trust that he's in control of our very lives and our very deaths? And that our very life and our death are ultimately for his glory and for our good? It's kind of a hard concept to consider that life some suffering in life can be for our good, and sometimes our death is even for our good. Because ultimately it will lead to our being with Christ. We've just talked about new birth in the life of the church. I think of parents. Do you trust God with the very life of your children? That he is in control of their well-being. I think of the enormous trend of helicopter parents these days who want to control every little thing their child does. Do you trust Jesus with the life of your children? Frankly, do we trust Jesus with the life of anyone else in our lives? Or are we so 
bent on controlling what is around us and controlling those whom we love. If you find that you do lack trust in Christ, that he is in control of these things, I pray that this story is a comfort to you. Jesus can handle your doubts and your unbelief. Where you feel like your dimmer switch just isn't quite high enough, your belief just isn't strong enough, Jesus can handle all of that. Take your time and trust in him. And so Jesus makes it very clear that our very life and death is under his control, both of which are for his glory and our good. But we can further take courage on our next post that we must live because Jesus himself is the very source of life. This point finding itself in the passage that we read because this is the most important part of this passage. If you're a Bible reading nerd, there's a way that scripture is written in such that when everything funnels down, it funnels down into one point, And when you look at it, this little section of scripture here is right smack dab in the middle. Indicating to us, the reader, that this is what we need to hone in on. And so Jesus arrives on the scene and Martha meets him before he can even get a word out. And I think it's kind of interesting. I noticed this as I was reading it out. I don't know how I didn't notice it earlier that in this scenario, Martha's the one running to meet Jesus. But in another scenario, Mary is the one sitting at Jesus' feet waiting around. It's kind of an interesting thing there. I know that was free. I just wanted to put that out there. I thought that was interesting. But, but then Martha confesses before Jesus can even get a word out to her that if he had been there, Lazarus would still be alive. And I think Martha's committing to an act of faith there saying, Jesus, if you'd have been here, I'm trusting in your benevolence and your goodness that if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But remember, Jesus had something better in mind. Jesus is going to do something better because he's in control of these things. Martha did not have to fear. Martha could live. And so Jesus responds that you know, Lazarus will come back to life. And then Martha says, yeah, yeah, Jesus, I know. There's going to be the resurrection in the last day. It'll all be good. And this is where that most important statement comes here in verse 25 and 26. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I almost want to imagine Jesus kind of cuts her off a little bit. And he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. I am the resurrection and the life. This, this thing you're worried about in the future, yes, but I, that, that thing is me. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Well, I skipped the part where he says, whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. This is a bold statement that does not connect readily for those of us in the 21st century. It's kind of a challenging one. And so there's, there's a couple things I want to highlight for us here. Because it's indicating to us that Jesus is the source of life. So Jesus is proclaiming himself to be God here. And he's not saying that I have aspects of deity about me. He's saying that the God that you have trusted in from the days of your birth, from the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that is who I am. See if we, whoa, where'd my notes go? Oh, there they are. Preaching from an iPad, y'all, not paper. It's vanished. So Jesus is proclaiming himself to be God. The God who called Abraham out of Ur and saved his people out of Egypt. The one whom we read in Genesis 1 that God created the heavens and the earth. You see, there's, there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. 
And it's written in Greek, obviously. And one of the things that God says to Moses in Exodus 3.14 in the burning bush, we all, that's a great children's story. It's a, probably one of the most prominent stories in all of Scripture. And God says to Moses the phrase, Ego Amy. If you've ever seen the commercial about the waffles, like Egos. Ego Amy. Yeah, yeah, that man knows. He knows. But Jesus is saying, he says the same exact thing here when we take the Greek translation of our New Testament. He's saying, Ego Amy. I am. Then he tacks on the things that he is. He's expanding their understanding of who God is that he is the resurrection and the life, that he is the very source of life. And if he is the God who created the heavens and the earth, who breathed life into Adam, then he is the very source of all life. The second thing that Jesus is saying is he's kind of turning Martha's concept of the resurrected life on its head. She's not concerned that Lazarus is dead now, but he will, she's concerned that he's dead now, but that he will be raised again in the future. But Jesus is saying, no, Martha, you're right. The resurrected life starts today. Why? Because I am the resurrection and the life, and I'm here. I'm here now. Therefore, resurrected life is today. It's right in front of you. So live. Fear not, for I am here. The third thing that we want to see is that's connected to this Ego Amy statement is that Jesus is the very source of all life and death. And it's not necessarily, there's two Greek words here that, that are, are key to this, is that there's the bios life that someone's just alive, and there's zoe life, like where we get the name Zoe from. If you have a child here named Zoe, if that's your name, that's where that came from. It means life, but it's a, it's a certain quality of life, a greatness of life. It's denoted that it is coming only from God. It's life that only comes from God. And that's what Jesus is describing himself to be here. Which is why he says that by placing our trust in him, that if we die, yet shall we live. And if we believe in him and live, we shall never die. For we are bound to him. If we believe in him, the Holy Spirit binds us to Christ by faith. It's not by anything great that we do. Nothing great that we do at all. For What great can we do? As we just recognized earlier, in the face of death, we're often left in a perilous state. But there's nothing that we can do. But by faith and trusting in Christ, the Spirit, by the same faith and grace that we've received to believe, binds us to Jesus. And if he is life and we are bound to him then life is given over to us. The fourth thing is Jesus is indicating what he is going to do, that he will go to the cross, that he will die, and he will rise again. He will be the instigator of this future resurrection that Mary is waiting for. He will be the source of that final thing because he is the resurrection and the life. Israel has a long history uh, in the Old Testament. If you've not read much of the Old Testament, I highly encourage you to do so. It makes Jesus so much more explosive. Gains so much more understanding of who Christ is. Because he was promised to us in the Old. 
And if we don't read the old, we have very little understanding of who the promised king was to be. But in the books, First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, Israel has a long history of good and bad kings. I think we can all agree that throughout the history of these United States, we've had a long history of both good and bad leaders. They're not always great. Most of the time, they're not great. I'll just be honest. But Jesus is the best king. He's not just a good king. He's the best king. You see, in, in Israel's history, when the king came, if he was a bad king, if he worshipped idols, so went the people. The people followed after them because they were united to him in such a way that whatever he believed and did, the people did also. When we see good kings in the Old Testament, the people would pursue after the same ideologies and behaviors of that king, and they would worship God. And they would be blessed because of that. But Jesus is the best king. He's not just a good king. All life, all resurrected life, flows from him. Because of Jesus, because Jesus is God himself. He is who he says that he is. And so Jesus is the king worth believing in because he is Yahweh, the God of our covenant. We prayed and thanked God for his covenant faithfulness to us earlier and our lack of covenant faithfulness to him. But he is the, Jesus is the God of the covenant. God himself fulfills it. And the simple question you have, I have before you is, do you believe this? Jesus plainly states that if we believe in him, we will never die. Do you believe? Do you trust? Do you feel that your light, your, your, your faith is a little dim? This story is for you. So that your faith may be brightened. It may increase. Our last point simply this, that we live because Jesus makes us alive. And this can be found in verses 28 to the end. And very plainly, there are two groups of people who show up on the scene here, those who place their trust in Christ and those who scoff at him. So Jesus begins to weep. And the people look at him and go, see how much he loved him, referring to Lazarus. But then there are those who are standing off to the side and they go, man, could this guy who opened the eyes of the blind man, which happened in John chapter 9, could he, could he have not saved this guy from dying? Come on. What a joke. And Jesus has a response for both of these people. You see, Jesus shows up and indicated to us earlier that Lazarus has been dead for four days. And what that means for, for us today is that Lazarus is dead dead. He's gone. He ain't coming back. He's not in need of Miracle Max from the Princess Bride who's seeking true love and needs a little like chocolate pill and have some bellows blown up into him. Lazarus is gone. Four days back to the end, people understood that if they're not walking out of that tomb, there's no way they're coming back. Not until the last day. But as Jesus said earlier, I am the resurrection and the life. And so we have hope now. And so we see that Jesus says, remove the stone from the tomb. And he simply calls out to Lazarus, someone whom Jesus loved and Lazarus loved Jesus. He calls out to him and he comes out of the tomb. 
Lazarus is alive. The reason being is because God does who he is. See, if God is the resurrect, if Jesus is the resurrection and the life, if he is the God of the covenant, if he is Yahweh, who the source of who is the source of life, and he calls Lazarus out of the tomb, he does that because he is who he says he is. God does who he is. God will never do anything that's contrary to his character. And that's what we're seeing occurring here today. And so Lazarus is raised from the dead. Now, I've not personally seen anybody come walking out of a, a tomb or anything. If you have, that's pretty incredible. Um, I, I would love to hear about it. But the reality for those of us today is that, very plainly, what we see Paul talk about in Romans chapter 6, that we are dead to sin and we are alive with Christ. And so Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb, and so has Jesus called us out of the tomb of our own sin. We were spiritually dead, and we're now spiritually alive. But I think every one of us can be honest with ourselves and say, Yeah, Blake, I'm dead to sin, but I also still sin. We have a problem that sin still is latched on a leech to our flesh today. Which is why we find hope. That in that future resurrection that Martha was talking about, we will be raised again. The body that we are currently struggling with that Paul speaks so much about throughout his letters, it'll fade away. And the same resurrected body that Christ received upon his resurrection, we will be like him. Sin will be no more. Sickness will be no more because he who is in control of sickness and death, he who is the resurrection and the life, will have redeemed us. Now a small thing that I think it's really, that can be unnoticed in this passage is the, the corresponding, it's not quite a miracle, but the action of Christ that Jesus wept. Jesus weeps for two reasons, I think. Jesus weeps because he who is the resurrection and the life, the very source of life, life itself, he hates death. He abhors it. And so when he sees the pain that has been caused to his people, he weeps. And so if you have lost a loved one this past year, if you know that that's in the imminent future, if you've lost a loved one in the past, I think we all have, know that Jesus weeps with you, that Christ has suffered alongside of you. And the second group of people are the people that scoffed at Christ, that said, is he not the one who healed the eyes of the blind man? Jesus weeps for them as well. He weeps because of their unbelief. He's frustrated because of their unbelief. Jesus loves them in some way, and yet they reject him. And he weeps for them. You see, God does who he is. He is the resurrection and the life. And so Jesus is not some wayward politician who says one thing and does another. And Jesus is the best king. The kind of king that we're all looking for. The kind of king that we have in mind when we celebrate our country. When we vote in various elections. The king that we wish all of our politicians were. But the sad reality is, is that none of them can give us life. That they all eventually fail 
to live up to that standard. Because Jesus is the best king. He is the resurrection and the life. And he is in control of life and of death. Because God does who he is. If you're a believer, as I said earlier, Paul says in Romans 6 that we have died to sin and we've been raised with Christ. If we've been buried with him, we will raise just like him. Just like his resurrection. I encourage you after this, go check out the resurrection narratives at the end of the Gospels. The way that Jesus is described, that he's glowing but yet present, that we can touch him and grab hold of him. I think Thomas gets a bad rap for wanting to place hands on his resurrected Savior. Because I think we're all kind of the same way. We want to see and we want to touch he who has saved us. He who is the resurrection and the life. And my goodness, I look forward to that day. I don't think we're all, sometimes we're not heavenly minded enough. We're far too concerned about the problems of the day. To finish where we started, the king and his people are trapped in the last bastion of hope. Things, the doors are boarded up as tightly as they can be, but all hope is lost. There's no way they're going to make it out of this. One of the other characters, his name's Aragorn, who's the subject of the third movie. His name's Aragorn, not Aragon. Don't, don't let anybody do you like that. It's, that's how you say his name. It's important. <laughs> but he remembers a promise that he was given by a wizard robed in white who both died and rose again. In this story, while they're on their way to Helm's Deep, he says, in three days, Helm's Deep's the name of the castle thing they're in. He says, in three days, look to the east of my, for my coming. And so they're waiting. It's been th- the battle's been going on for a night and a day. He said that to them two days beforehand. And the sun starts to come up through one of the small windows in the keep. And Aragorn remembers the promise that he had received that someone would come and save them. And so he reminds the king that they should go out and meet death, that they should take up arms and saddle their horses and ride out of the keep and live. And so they do so. They burst open the doors as one of the the dwarves blows from a giant horn declaring victory. They ride out to meet death. Because they're, they're living on a promise that say salvation will come. And they get out there, they look to the east, and from the tops of the mountains comes thousands of warriors with the white-robed wizard in front of them. And they conquer death where it stands. Christian, we have a promise that Jesus is who he says that he is, that he is the resurrection and the life, that he is in control of sickness and in death and of death, and that he does who he is and that he gives us life today. Let us go and live in the midst of death, knowing that we live in a world that is so hungry for life. Let us go and live and give it to them. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that in your son, Jesus Christ, you've made us alive in him. 
that bound to him. He is the source of life that we know that he is in control of our very lives and of our death. That we are bound to him who is the source of all life. And that he has raised us from the dead on account of his resurrection. And that we will in the future meet him face to face. Take hold of him in a warm embrace of love and of life. Father, we thank you that these things are true of us today. And we look forward to their full fulfillment. May we go from here living in the life that you have given us. One of grace one of truth, life of love, and give it freely to those who are hungry for life. So many people these days, Lord, are depressed, lonely, and afraid. They need to know that you are present, that you are here, and that you are ready to dispense resurrected life to them by faith. May we as the faithful go and give this life to them. That they may live just as we have, are living. And look forward to the day of the fullness of life coming to us. Lord, we are living on a promise. That you are who you say that you are. And that you love us. May that day come swiftly, Lord. We pray all this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.